We'll hear argument now on number 96779, Arkansas Educational Television Commission versus Ralph Ford. Mr. Mars. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The issue in this case is whether the state of Arkansas may establish the Arkansas Educational Television Network as an institution of the press, insulated by policy, structure, and tradition from state political pressure. The issue is important to viewers across the country who depend on public television to select and deliver information, particularly so in political uh, elections, but of course at other times too. And this case does not uh, extend just to political debates because if the decision below stands, <clears throat> its rationale will not only result in fewer debates and less coverage of politics, but it will extend to other programs of a controversial nature where the <clears throat> trustworthiness of uh, public television editors will be questioned because they are employees of the state. Well, I think not necessarily. It all depends on the analysis that we follow. And you have to ask whether uh, this is closer to a situation of the state speaking as such or a situation of letting candidates speak. I mean, it may fall on one or the other side of the line. Your Honor, I agree that the rationale that the court uses will, of course, affect the scope of the, uh, of the decision. But I think that it's clear from the record whether we deal with a public uh, forum, doctrine, rationale, or whether we deal with a structural rationale based on League of Women Voters. That the station was intending to let the candidates speak. The station wasn't trying to put words in their mouths. Uh, that's, that's correct, Your Honor. In this case, we are, we are not talking about state no. speech. We're and uh, did, did the station set in advance here? Uh, the rules that it eventually came up with when there was a third candidate? Your Honor, the rules that... When, when it opened, when it first decided to have the debate, as I understand it, it just said we're going to let the candidates for this office come here and have a debate. Uh, not not uh, exactly, Your Honor. In fact, I, I think that that is not a full enough characterization of the, of the record. What the state decided here was to hold a debate that would best serve the interests of its viewers. And the record reflects that the editors uh, went through an elaborate analysis. Ms. Oliver did an elaborate investigation and reported to Ms. Howarth, the editor-in-chief of the Arkansas Network, <clears throat> about those candidates who were newsworthy. And it is I thought that occurred after this third-party candidate appeared and said, I want to talk to you. No, Your Honor. In fact, when the uh, debate discussion started, which was sometime in the spring of 1992, there was uh, a discussion, and it's reflected in the, in the testimony that, uh, that we had a trial, about how the debates would be structured and about their rationale. And the, the purpose from the beginning was to provide the citizens of Arkansas with a, an opportunity to hear the views of those candidates who are going to, to be 
the ones they were going to be voting for, who had, in the words of the witnesses, a serious chance, who were demonstrating popular support by virtue of, of any number of factors. Now, certainly... Well, I, I thought that was what emerged eventually in response to the request of Mr. Forbes to participate. But was that laid out in all its complexity at the outset? Not in all its no. complexity, no, Your Honor. But, what, but, but the early discussions between Amy Oliver and Bill Simmons, the chief of the Associated Press in Arkansas, concentrated on who, whom to invite. Now, when they issued the invitations, the only candidates who were on the list to be invited were, were ballot-qualified candidates, and they were, in each district, the Republican and the Democratic candidates. So when the um, original decision was made, the only candidates uh, who could be invited were the major party candidates. Mr. Forbes qualified on uh, August 17 of 1992, and his letter was, was uh, August 24. But even before that, Your Honor, the, the policies that AETN has adopted, the policy on editorial, in, editorial integrity, uh, the programming policy which incorporates the principles of editorial in, in, integrity, set out for Ms. Howarth what would be her uh, basis for decision. Well, I assume that this decision was parallel to what a private network would do uh, with a similar debate in a similar format. Uh, is that in the record, or do I just judicially know that, or is that important for the case? Uh, Your Honor, I, I think that, it, that there are enough cases, uh, the Chisholm case, uh, the, Henry, the Henry Gellard decision at the FCC, so that, in fact, from those cases, the court can take judicial notice that this is a typical structure for debates. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, other stations, privately owned stations, can surely do things that, uh, that, that your station is not allowed to. Could your station endorse a, a candidate? Uh, no, Your Honor, because of Section uh, 399 of the Communications Act. Um, let's assume that's not there. As a constitutional matter, would your, would your uh, station be able to endorse a particular candidate for public office? Well, Your Honor, of course, that is... <laughs> That is very much not this case, um, and I think under... Oh, I thought it was. <laughs> not, not, not without 399, Your Honor. I mean, I know it's not this case. I'm, I'm asking you, if 399 were not there, would, your, would a publicly owned station, as a constitutional matter, be able to endorse a political candidate? Under forum doctrine, the answer is no, because uh, I think to do under that... Forum do I'm not talking about creating a forum. I'm just talking about a publicly owned station that comes out and says, we endorse... Uh, you know, the Republican or the Democratic candidate for this district. Now, a private broadcaster can certainly do that, can he not? A private broadcaster can. But uh, is it, do you think a public broadcaster can? I think this public broadcaster, under these policies, the, the uh, principles of editorial integrity and AETN's programming policy, this public broadcaster could not do that and stay within the bounds of the policy. Well, I would be contract. interested to hear you answer Justice Scalia's question, which you haven't done yet. Uh, if this station wished to endorse a candidate, could it have done so under the Constitution without regard to any statutory provision? Mr. Chief Justice, I, I think that the, the answer to Justice Scalia's question would depend on whether that would be con considered invidious discrimination. And I don't think there's any precedent on it, but my belief is that it would be. Under the equal protection 
under an equal protection theory. They, they couldn't do it. Could not. Could not. Because I think that the I think Justice Scalia that the that there are limits on what a state-owned broadcaster can do. I think those bounds are set by invidious discrimination. Well, to tie that into where we were before I asked the question, the mere fact that you're using standards that a private broadcaster would use and that you're doing nothing more than what a, you know, a private uh, station would do, you're not behaving in a politically biased manner, you're just behaving like a good broadcaster, that doesn't, doesn't help your case because there are some things that private broadcasters can do that you can't do, and uh, maybe this is one of them. I, I think, Your Honor, that there's a great difference between endorsing a candidate and having the state come down uh, that way. I think it's an equal protection uh, uh, issue at the very least. Well, I, I think that uh, I, I'm not sure about that. But it, can your answer be, uh, and, and can we look at this case as saying that we look at different programs to determine what the First Amendment rules are, and we look on a program-by-program program basis, or do the same rules have to apply to every part of the station's ownership, management, control, and broadcasting, i.e., hypotheticals about endorsement, hypotheticals whether you can hire all Democrats or all Republicans for the editorial board and so forth. We look at the precise function that's in question, i.e., the conduct of debate. Is, 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 would that be a way answer Justice Scalia's question, and would that be an adequate, is there adequate precedent for us to decide this case on that, on that sort of analysis? The answer to the second question is yes, and the answer to the first question is yes. Each one of these situations, each one of these questions about whether a particular program satisfies this court's precedent is a two-level analysis. First, you've got to analyze the intent of AETC in delegating to Ms. Howarth the editorial discretion within the bounds of these policies. And Justice Scalia, these policies do bound her in a way that a private broadcaster is not bounded because they require her to consider credibility and fairness and balance and accuracy and objectivity. And a private broadcaster is not bound that way. Don't you think some private broadcasters might think those elements were desirable? I think most private broadcasters would find them desirable. And, in, and indeed, Mr. Chief Justice, the intent of adopting the principles of editorial integrity was to allow the public broadcaster to walk this very difficult line of needing to satisfy the requirements of the First Amendment as, as the foundation requirement, but at the same time being able to satisfy the requirement in the Communications Act that it control all its programming. Because being responsible wouldn't, wouldn't allow you to endorse one of the candidates for the office even if you had criteria, we will not endorse any candidate unless, and you set out the criteria. It may be very responsible. It may be very objective even. But that doesn't prove that the government can do it. The mere fact that it's objective and responsible. You wouldn't allow an endorsement of a candidate to proceed on that. Well, Your Honor, in, in this case, um, I understand that the, that the question is, a, 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 if I understand it correctly, a polar question for analytical purposes. But this case has a record, and, 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 the, and there are distinct policies here, and there is elaborate testimony. Yes, but on the record in this case, could they, just to take the other side of Justice Scalia's question, could they announce that we don't want you to vote for, for Forbes? Don't waste your time listening to him or voting for him. Concentrate uh, on the two major candidates. 
No, a reverse, with, uh, a disendorsement of him. With Section 399 not there, Your Honor? With, with yeah. The prohibition not there. Uh, I, I still believe that there's an equal protection boundary uh, for a state-owned broadcaster. It's an invidious discrimination for a, for a state-owned agent to say, we just think this guy's off the wall, we don't think you should waste your time with him. If all, if all that is true, it's invidious discrimination? Well, I think that is viewpoint discrimination, as, you, as I understand your question, that's certainly prohibited under the, uh, under the rationale of the forum doctrine cases. Because well, then why isn't what you did viewpoint discrimination? Because in... Because you had a lot of neutral rules out there. They're not in writing anywhere, but uh, governed exactly how you'd handle the debate. The, the guiding principles are certainly in writing, and there are two levels, the, the, the guidelines... Yeah, but they don't tell us whether he would have been permitted to debate if he could have gotten 12% of the vote instead of 2%, do they? That's right, Your Honor. What, what Ms. Howarth is obligated to do is to apply the principles of, of mainstream journalism, and under those principles she made a, a decision based on newsworthiness. Now, it seems to me that... Isn't that simply a way of saying that the distinctly minority candidate always loses? Because I presume newsworthiness is a measure of the interest of the public in the candidate. And if the judgment is made by the station that this candidate is a loser, uh, uh, is, is never going to garner anything but a small minority, and therefore is not newsworthy, uh, then the, the minority candidate always loses. And why isn't that a pretty darn good surrogate for viewpoint discrimination? The viewpoint is unpopular. There are two reasons, Justice Souter. First, as Mr. Perot's experiences in uh, 1992 and 1996 illustrate, uh, there can be uh, a different conclusion based on newsworthiness, and the distinctly minority candidate does not always lose. Isn't it, isn't it true that you put both party, major party candidates on, even though one has a tiny percent of, and, and so is not of much interest to the public? Uh, Yes, Your Honor, and the reason, as reflected in the, in the record, in the testimony of Ms. Howarth and Ms. Oliver, is that a major party nomination carries with it a degree of public support that news people usually don't ignore, and they didn't ignore in this case. May I return to Justice O'Connor's uh, question about what these standards of newsworthiness were. There was nothing written down in advance. And so why isn't this like the legions of cases that have come up with a government official allowing, say, a permit for a parade with no standards at all, and then after a request is made, maybe coming up with a set of reasons? Generally in this area, hasn't the court required at least that there be clear standards written down going in? Uh, not in a non-public forum, Your Honor, and certainly not under a League of Women Voters structural analysis. If you, I don't think that we require, that I don't think this court's cases require. I don't know about the friend. League of Women Voters, but we are talking about whatever else they are. They are government actors. Well, let, let's, let's, uh, let me address that in terms of Polk County. There's no question that there's state action here. But Ms. Howarth is not acting, in our view, as we have said in our brief, under color of state law. She's under exercising independent professional judgment. This is essentially a private press function. She's not dependent on the state's coercive power here. She's not doing this out of loyalty to the state. If you have integrity, you're not a state actor? Is that the principle that you're, that you're trying to 
Could, could, could she refuse to allow someone on the account of their race? No, Your Honor. Well, and she's a, a, a state actor in, in, in that sense. If she, if she crossed the... First of all, that would be outside these policies that guide her. And, and in response to Justice O'Connor's and Justice Ginsburg's question, these policies do provide some guidance. It's not as if, the, not as if she's out there on a chartless sea. Well, I, I think the question is what's permissible for a state actor, not whether or not she is or is not a state actor. And if that's the case, Your Honor, just on pure forum doctrine terms, when you're dealing, uh, Justice Ginsburg, with a non-public forum, then the rules there need well, not be narrow. Who said it was a non-public forum? I thought that was what we had to decide. And here the station chose to open up a debate to selected candidates. I mean, that sounds a lot like a limited public forum to me, not a non-public forum. I guess we have to resolve that, don't we? Yes, Justice O'Connor, you do. But I think, as you, as you phrased it, the, the key word is selected candidates because the intent of Ms. Howarth from the start was clear that she was not opening up this debate to candidates who were not newsworthy. You think selectivity alone means that it can't be a limited public forum? I think that in... I hadn't thought so. Uh, what do you rely on for that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, I want to know whether this was...